If you have your Bible with you, turn to 1 Peter, the letter that we are studying together. And I would like to read a portion of the first chapter. Peter, will begin in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And then we come to the text that we're considering a portion of today. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I've entitled this section of the first chapter, A Journey of Hope and Holiness. 
And we are only going to look at the first of those today. A journey of hope and a journey of holiness. When we look at our life right now, and we consider it that it's a journey, we're living life day after day that the Lord gives to us. We rise up in the morning, we go through the daylight, we enter the evening and then sleep through the night to rise up the next morning, be it the will of God. We are one week closer to the coming of Christ today than we were last week. But we're on a journey. So how should I then live on this journey? What should consume my, my, my passion, my heart, my thinking? How do I live? And these two words are so important to us. Hope and holiness. As we study the Scripture together, I like to teach you not only what the text is saying, but how to study a text. You know, our nation has just gone through the confirmation hearings for a new Supreme Court justice, and one of the things that was pointed out at her hearing, by the way, a brilliant woman, was that she is what is called a constitutionalist. What does that mean? It means that when she looks at the Constitution, she is going to make certain that when she applies that Constitution to current law, that what the framers meant by what they wrote is understood. So she's going to know what those words meant when they were penned years ago. The intent of the writer is very important to a constitutional judge. They realize that they are not in that position to make new laws or to change laws. Whose responsibility is that in this country? Congress's responsibility. So a constitutionalist is not going to usurp the place of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the executive branch. The House or Senate have to start a law. It has to be passed in both chambers. It has to sit on the president's desk, and he has to sign it. And only after it's signed by the president does it become law. Now, if he doesn't sign it, it goes back, and they can overrule that. But once it's established as law, every single judge is to follow that law and interpret cases. The point I'm trying to make is this. Judges should be consumed with understanding what the text said and meant the day it was written. That is how we're to approach the Bible. One of the philosophies, one of the statements in our church bylaws is that we believe in the expositional 
teaching of the Bible. That we believe in the grammatical, historical interpretation of the book. That means that I need to discover what was meant and said when Peter wrote his letter. I don't approach Peter's letter and decide, you know, I want to come up with a sermon today, and therefore I'm going to just kind of take a text that Peter's got in his letter, and I'm going to lift a phrase out of his letter, and then I'm going to preach you this sermon because I want to say something to you. No, that is not the proper way to approach the Bible. The proper way to approach the Bible, and I think it's very important for uh, those that teach the Bible to do the best they can to understand original languages. There's all kinds of tools out there today that will help you know exactly what that word meant uh, 2,000 years ago. And so you give yourself to a passionate investigation of the text. I was fortunate when I was in college. Um, we studied the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek. And then we went to graduate school and studied the text of the Old Testament, which is Hebrew and Aramaic. There are some Aramaic passages in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, I will confess that I stayed on top of my Greek a lot better than I did my Hebrew. But there's no greater joy to me, even as I prepare to teach you, than to open up the Greek text and just read it and analyze it and start taking it apart so I can understand what Peter is saying. You will not know what the Bible means until you know what it says. And so I want you to learn as we study the Bible together and as you read and study it on your own how to approach the text. The Bible is no different than any other piece of literature. Languages communicate in verbs and nouns and pronouns and participles and adverbs, right? We get that. We grew up learning all the, what are the parts of speech? Now, my wife is far better, better equipped to do this, and I, she taught all my kids these things. Six children she taught all these things to. If you can remember any of your grammar, you know that a sentence has a main verb, right? Yes or no? Okay. It has nouns, pronouns, adverbs, adjectives. So you've got a main verb. And then in the sentence, you might also have a participle. A participle. Anybody remember a participle is a word that ends in what? I-N-G, okay, I-N-G. You say, Pastor, I came to hear a sermon. I didn't come to get an English lesson. Well, I give that to you to demonstrate to you that as we approach the text, a text that we're going to look at today and a text that we're going to, Lord willing, look at next Sunday, I'm going to demonstrate to you that there are four verbs in this text. And I've got them bold black. One is found in verse 13, fix your hope. 
The second verb is found in verse 15, be holy. And then there are two verbs in verse 16. It is written, you shall be holy. Now, of those four verbs, two of them are commands. This text is going to command us to do some things. And the two imperative commands are found, one of them in verse 13, fix your hope. And the second command is found in verse 15, be holy. And that is why I've entitled this section, A Journey of Hope and Holiness. Are you with me? Now, surrounding these two imperative commands, by the way, the last two verbs in verse 16 are not imperatives. They're not commands. They're statements, okay? But surrounding these two imperative commands in this text are participle, participial phrases, we call them. A participial phrase cannot stand by itself. Is this a complete sentence? Running to the store. Is that a complete sentence? That's a participial phrase. Running to the store, I tripped on the sidewalk. Now, that's a complete sentence, right? The main verb is I tripped on the sidewalk. When did you trip on the sidewalk? When I was running to the store. Okay? Participial phrases in this text, I've actually put in the red font. I don't know how clearly you can see it there in the back. But in verse 13, there is the participial phrase, prepare your minds. There's a second participial phrase, keep sober in spirit. And then there is a third participle, be brought to you. Three participles are surrounding the first command. And they all have to do with this hope, this journey of hope that you and I are on as believers. A way to live in this life, hope and holiness. And then when you look at the second imperative command in verse 15, be holy, there are two participial phrases that surround that verb, the main verb. One is found in verse 14, do not be conformed. The second one is in verse 15, who called you. Now, I just gave you the structure of this text. The title, you already know, the reason I gave it the title, A Journey of Hope and Holiness because of those two imperative commands. They're not suggestions, by the way. An imperative is a command. This is what the Creator has commanded us to do as believers. Hope and holiness. Now, there's going to be some more imperatives in Peter's letter. Hope and holiness. And then he's going to help us understand this hope 
And that's all we're going to look at today by giving us these two participles. Prepare and keep sober. Are you with me? Okay. Now that's your grammar. That's your structure. Now I want to point another word out to you, and it's the first word of verse 13. And what is that? Therefore. When you, and you've probably heard this, people that have taught you the Bible over the years, whether, I should say the Bible, you read a newspaper, you read a magazine, you read Twitter, you read social media, language communicates. When you see the word therefore in any written article, you should ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? You ever heard that little nuance? When you see therefore... Why is therefore there? And the word therefore always points us backwards, doesn't it? Therefore, therefore, do this and this and this. Therefore, hope. And be holy. And so, if we were to understand the meaning of therefore, we had to go back to the in, backwards in the text, and that is why I read beginning in verse one, all the way through verse twelve. And we took a number of weeks looking at this great doxology of praise to God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we discovered in that doxology that, that there are so many aspects to the salvation that God has for us as His people. So many different ways that God has shown grace to us. These people that were suffering, Peter says, listen, in the midst of your suffering, I want you to remember that you're God's elect. That God exercised a sovereign choice of you and that the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life right now to change you, to sanctify you, and you are to obey Jesus Christ because He paid for your disobedience. He died on the cross for you that you might be sprinkled with His blood. And we discovered that that was a text that reaches back in the Old Testament to define the people that God had elected and chosen and were sanctifying and for whom Christ died, that they were people after the animals. When God entered into the covenant and animals were slain, blood was taken and sprinkled all the people. And as soon as they were sprinkled with this blood, they all cried out, God, we're going to obey you. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 5, this grace of God in salvation 
reminds us that His Son is the one that is the heir of everything. Jesus is the heir of everything. And that you and I are joint heirs with Jesus. And that God has planted His life in us in Christ. And the Father has shown us mercy. I sung the song about mercy today because of this. And we were reminded in verses 3 through 5 that the Father raised His Son from the dead and in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus that He identified us with Christ. It is as if I died. It was as if I was buried. It is as if I was raised from the dead and everything that Jesus accomplished belongs to me. And then we were reminded in that section that God has given us an incredible inheritance and that until the day we receive it, He's going to protect us. But that inheritance is coming and He told us in that section that it'll come at the appropriate time. You ever been the recipient of an inheritance? Did you ever know that you were going to be the recipient of an inheritance? And he said, why do I have to wait? You know, give it to me now. No, this text says you've got an inheritance. And it's going to come to you at the appropriate time. And we found that in that section. And then he turned his attention in that doxology away from the work of God the Father. And he turned it toward Christ. And he told us that Christ is the object of our saving faith. Christ is the one that we've never seen, and yet we love Him. And that there is a final salvation that is coming to us when He returns. Verses 6 through 9. Rich. Every one of these sections are rich. We spent an entire sermon on each one of those sections. And then we saw verses 10 through 12. This gracious salvation what is grace? It's God's what? Unmerited favor. Does God owe you grace? No. That's why it's called unmerited. God gives it to you. You don't work for these gifts, this grace, this goodness, this kindness, this mercy. Matter of fact, there's nothing you could do to obligate God to grace you. It's unmerited. And in verses 10 through 12, we saw that this saving, unmerited grace was the intense study of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, these Old Testament prophets were opening up the five books of Moses, and they were studying the salvation that God promised after Adam and Eve blew it in the garden. And He promised He was going to send a Redeemer who would reverse the curse of the serpent. And the prophets were reading Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And by the way, you will find some of the richest reading in your life in the Law of Moses, believe it or not. My favorite book in all the Bibles, the book of Deuteronomy. Reading the book of Deuteronomy has helped me understand the Bible like no other book ever has. Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the Old Testament. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. 
And it was the book that the second Adam quoted in the wilderness when he faced the serpent like Adam did in the garden. Christ as the second one faced him in the wilderness. And there's one book that he quoted from three times. What was it? The book of Deuteronomy. I thought I was going to preach on holiness today too. And in preparation for that, I read through the book of Leviticus twice. And I saw things in Leviticus I'd never seen before. And Lord willing, we'll point those out to you next week. But these prophets were reading Moses, and then they were penning prophecy. And they were studying the own prophecy that they were penning, given to them by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And they were looking at the grace of God. The grace of our Creator. And then we discovered that when the apostles came after Christ, that they were preaching the message of saving grace. And we discovered last week, or the week before, that the message of grace is the message that angels are leaning forward with intense interest at how can these human beings get unmerited favor from God. Look at what God is doing with this part of His creation. They're rebelling against them. Disobedience after disobedience. And yet he comes to them and treats them with kindness and goodness. And their behavior doesn't match up with family father behavior. And yet he calls them his children. And why does he deal with them in the person of a representative? Why does he send the son who was sharing the glory of the Father forever. And he leaves that and then takes upon himself a humanity, bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. Why is God doing that? With intense interest, they look at this salvation. They look at how it delivers man from the penalty of his sin at Calvary. They look at how God delivers men from the passion of their sin in time. And they're looking intently at the promise that the day is coming where every human being in Christ will be given a resurrected body. There'll be no more death, no more sighing, no dying, no pain, no tears. And that there is an inheritance that awaits these people. Christ is the heir of all things. I'm a joint heir. And the text says Christ owns everything. All things are His. And then they, they, they look at the fact that there's ages to come. Not one age. It doesn't say in the age to come. But like Paul writes in, in Ephesians, that in the ages to come, that God is going to show us kindness in Christ. What is that going to be like? I just know this life, and so do you. I've experienced a lot of kindness from God in this life. And trust me, it's come to me not because I deserved it, but because He's a God of grace. 
And he has things planned for me that I can't even imagine. And so, in light of all of that, he closes out verses 10 through 12 and says that this grace is for those who believe. Wow. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have this unmerited grace. Now, because of everything that I just reviewed with you about this salvation that is ours, therefore, I command you to fix your hope. And that, that fixing of your hope is supposed to be completely, not half-heartedly, not just some of the time in your life, but you're to march on your journey fixing hope. And hope is not, I hope something happens. Hope is expecting something to happen. Hope is believing that what God promised in the past and fulfilled, that what He promises in the future, He's going to fulfill. I believe with all of my hope, that my, all, all of my heart, that heaven is my home. I believe that my sins are forgiven eternally. I believe that I'm going to see the Lord Jesus Christ someday. I believe I'm going to be reunited with my believing family. I believe I'm going to walk the streets of gold. I believe that there's going to be kindness for me forever. And I am going to fix my hope on the future. Too many of you are living in your past. And you have turned your mind to thinking about your failures and your past and your hurts God doesn't want you to focus your mind on those things. He wants you to focus your mind on the future things. Completely. But what are you supposed to focus your, your, your mind on? It's hope completely on the what? Grace. He want, it doesn't say fix your hope doesn't put in the word heaven. Doesn't put that in there, does he? He said, put your hope on the grace. My friend, there is undeserved favor coming to you in the future. tells us when it's going to come at the revelation of Jesus. And I'm going to come back to that because I want to know how I can do this. And you have to look at two participles. How can I be a believer on my journey that can have a hope that's fixed completely on future grace? Two things. Number one, I've got to prepare my mind for action. 
And number two, I need to keep sober in spirit. Literally, the text says, gird your mind for action. Kind of an interesting word, gird. You got to go back in the culture. You got to go back when this letter was penned. You got to understand what it meant to gird your mind. And if you go back in the culture, you, 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 you're reminded of the fact that in that day, they wore long robes and have a robe that would reach nearly to the ground. Now, I've never been fond of wearing a dress. But, it, you know, that was the culture where men and women, they wore these long robes. Which is fine if you were just walking through the day, talking to people, meeting with people. But, ladies... How difficult is it for you to run if you've got a dress or a skirt that reaches your ankles? How difficult? Yeah, you get it. So what they would do in that day is they would take the corners of their robe and they would tuck it into a sash around their body. And so now they were girded so that they could move about, they could work, they could run. In other words, that long flowing robe was hindering their ability to run. So they girded them. And what Peter is saying is that your thinking and your mind is hindering your ability to hope. So you need to gird your mind. Now stop and think about it. Everything you do in life, you think about beforehand. Right? You live your life where? You live your life in your head. You live your life in your mind. Even our sinning starts right here. You don't tell me that you were just walking you know, along someday and whoop, you fell into sin. Whoop, tripped over it. No, you thought about it. And you relived it in your mind. And then you began to plan for it and make certain that it would happen. It all starts here. And Peter is telling us, if you and I are ever going to get along on this journey of hope to where we can look at the grace that's coming to us, that we're going to have to change our thinking. It's it's exactly what Paul was saying in, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, stop being conformed to the world but be you transformed by the what? The renewing of your thinking. We need the mind of God in this age. All around us, society is full of the minds of sin and death. Not a spiritual mind, but a natural mind, a carnal mind. That is all around us. 
That is what we knew before we came to Christ. We were ignorant, ignorant of the things of God. And we're going to see next week that no longer are we ignorant of who God is and the things of God. We've been given information. We've got a new way of thinking. And I believe with all of my heart if believers would get into the mind of God and make the mind of God their way of thinking, it's going to drastically change their hope for the future. And where do I find the mind of God? In the Word of God. I don't find it on Twitter. I can guarantee you if they really publish the Bible, they might turn that down too. Twitter might cancel your, your, your account if you put the Bible out there. If you say something on your account that's from the Bible that's not uh, politically correct, they'll shut you down. That's the mind of men. We find the mind of God in the Bible. I can just tell you this from my own experience. And many of you in the same room can tell me this from your experience. The more I read the Bible, the more it helps me clear up my thinking. And it orders my life. And I can look through all the fog of everything that's going on around us today. I woke up to news this morning where there was a group of people that were protesting for free speech out in California. They were protesting against Twitter and Facebook for shutting down free speech. So a little bit more than a dozen of them out there in California. And within moments of their protest, dozens and dozens of Antifa attacked them physically. And there's a picture of an African-American man with his two front teeth punched out and bleeding. That's the fog that's happening all around us in this country in the affairs of men. And corruption is everywhere. And norms are being destroyed all around us so quickly. Those of us that are older are looking at this country and we're saying, how can we be where we are today? And if you're not careful... You're going to get so sucked into this that you're going to be overwhelmed and discouraged and defeated. There might be trials coming for us, but I want to tell you something. You need to gird up your mind and fill your mind with the Word of God to get the right thinking so that you can look through all the darkness and all the fog into the future at the grace that's going to come to us. And don't you want everybody in society to experience that grace? I can't imagine people, if all they know is this world and this life and that's it for them, they need to know Christ 
Just give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. That's what they need. So you fix your hope on eternal things. And the way you do it is by girding your mind and getting into the book. And, he says, by self-control. Be sober. It's a word that speaks of self-control. So many people struggle. I do in my own life. There are issues in my life that I have battled a long time. And I look at those issues and I say, why isn't there control in that issue? And I'm overcome by those things. For the believer, in order to hope, he says we've got to learn self-control. And I am so thankful, we're going to learn next week, that this self-control that is demanded of me, if I'm going to be able to hope completely on this grace that is to come, can come to me through the Spirit of God. We can't live this journey by ourselves. Can't do it. Then may I close this section by saying this. I'm to fix my, my mind. I'm to control my life, discipline my life. Discipline. It's not a good word for sober. Discipline our life. We get into habits, don't we? You have any habits in your life? Yes or no? Don't have my glasses on because I can't see if you're shaking your head yes or no. Okay. All right, we have habits, don't we? And if you do the same thing they say for basically like three weeks, guess what? You're going to be doing it in week four and week five and week six and week seven. You know, to change that habit, you redirect yourself for about three weeks. And I want to tell you something we have as believers. We've got the Spirit of God. Spirit of the Lord, I need you. I had some issues this past week. Once again, that old flesh of mine just reared up like it just wanted to sin. And I began to think some things up here. Now, if you're more sanctified than I am, then forgive me right now, okay? But I began to just live right up here what I wanted. And it came to the place where I had to say, Spirit of the living God, I need you right now. And he will be there. I can tell you, Bill Jones and Frank Jones can tell you the same thing. So keep up with the Joneses. He's there. But this grace that is coming to us is going to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is coming. He is coming. And it's called the revelation because that's where he's going to be revealed for who he is. The world doesn't know who he is right now. Most of the world. Different words to describe the coming of Christ. Apocalypse. That's where he's revealed. And that's the word that's used here. Another Greek word is parousia. When he comes, he's going to physically be present with us. 
Another word is epiphania, which means that when he comes, he's going to come in all of his glory. There's glory, the glory of the Father and the glory of the saints and the glory of the angels and his own glory. Epiphania. Jesus Christ is coming and we drank. We drank the, the juice and ate the unleavened bread and we're going to do it until he comes. And when he comes, he's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to sort it all out. And he's going to come as a judge. And when he comes, my friends, God's grace is going to be there for Bill Jones. He is going to give me a brand new body, the redemption of my body. No longer will I struggle. I can say with the Apostle Paul, oh, who can deliver me from the body of this sin and death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Do you understand what awaits you? Fix your hope completely on that by girding your mind, by being disciplined, and you'll understand why. I close with this illustration from the Old Testament. God would redeem his people from Egypt, right? With them celebrating the Passover meal, right? And the table that we took today was unleavened bread and a cup. And the Passover meal, the night he redeemed, involved unleavened bread and a cup. Are you with me? They were redeemed. Unleavened bread and a cup. Do you know what God told them to do that night? He said this. Gird yourselves. And put on your sandals. Because you're starting a journey. To an inheritance. In the land I promised Abraham. And just as they girded themselves. He tells all of us who've been redeemed to gird your mind put on your sandals you're on a journey to a future inheritance if you don't know the Lord you need to know the Lord if you've never repented and put your faith in Christ my friends you're not on that journey heaven is not your home the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. I'd take that off my Twitter account too. I don't have Twitter. We do have a Facebook account. My wife and I probably look at it twice every three years. 
I'll tell you something. It's more important for you to get your face in his book than be putting your face on Facebook. You need mind renewal for this journey. And thank God it's there. Let's pray together.